So, good afternoon. Good to see that you are still here. For those of you that are new to retreat, I know that that, uh, you might not be taking that for granted, that you're still here. So, glad to see that you are still here, sticking it out. And I was just in the uh, staff dining room, a friend that um, used to work here, it's just passing through and knew that there was a Dhamma talk and he said, uh, I heard that this is a good place to hear the Dhamma, to hear a Dhamma talk. And I was thinking uh, just about that phrase, a Dhamma talk. And uh, that's what this is, is right now. You're hearing a Dhamma talk. Um, But basically a Dhamma talk is a talk that is meant to point us to what is true and what is real. It's about reality. Uh, It can be entertaining, but that's not the essence of it. Um, It can be exciting or thrilling, but that's not uh, the point of it. And I was just thinking how beautiful it is that that's what is happening here. That we are all engaged in this practice uh, of the Dhamma. And again, you might not have picked that up from the first night. The Dhamma means, can mean several things. Um, It can point to the teachings that um, the Buddha left behind, so the path, the teachings. But another level, the Dhamma means uh, the nature of things, the nature of reality. It's interesting when we uh, craft the titles for these retreats, is often sort of joked about because it's usually some sort of advertisement that says, you know, come experience the beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And then we list all these gorgeous qualities that you'll experience. And then what we leave out is, oh, and by the way, on the way there to developing these qualities, you'll probably experience a whole lot of suffering before you get there. And that wouldn't sell very well. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we put up these titles that are very alluring, very uh, kind of ennobling. You think, oh, I want to do that. But if you have experienced suffering today, you're on your way. So I'm curious, anybody meet the good friend of suffering? Anyone suffer at all? Little bits? Yeah, or does that mean a lot if you're going like this? (laughs) Um, And it's wonderful that you think about this word, suffering. I turn on the lights, I realize it's going to get darker as we go. Um... In this path, the Buddha described uh, his first kind of noble truth and described it as noble, as the noble truth of suffering. And it really is just this indication or pointer saying, this is true. If you have consciousness, if you are sensitive, alive, 
with a body that will see and hear and get impressed upon by the world. And in a world that is constantly changing, right, that it's adhering to its own conditions, not in our control, then it is bound to be that your mind and heart will experience dukkha, suffering. And yet he didn't say it's a depressing thing to look at. And if he said, here are the four depressing truths, (laughs) Buddhism would really not work. And yet a lot of people do think Buddhism is very kind of this bleak, all about suffering. So I often like to say that luckily the Buddha didn't stop at the first noble truth. So he gave more than one truth. He said, there is suffering. It has a cause. That cause is the tendency of the mind to grasp, to cling, to identify moment after moment what is happening. And that's the essence of why unpleasant moments really hurt, right? It's because we get entangled with what is here, what is happening. And that happens for all of us, for each one of our hearts and minds. And then the third noble truth is, uh, this is where it gets a little bit happier. There is the end of suffering. And that end is in really the essence of non-clinging, non-craving. So the heart and mind that begins to understand that there is some dynamic that's playing out each moment that we breathe, each moment that we see, each moment that we feel. There is some process that's unfolding and that process can be looked into. And when we look at it, the Dhamma, the nature, the truth of things begins to be revealed. But that's not easy to see. But we will see it. In five days, we will see something. I promise. Maybe. (laughs) And then the fourth noble truth, the Buddha basically laid out the path, which is here is what you need to do. And basically he was saying, I can tell you what you have to do, but my telling you most likely won't just free your mind, right? So even if all of us give the perfect instructions, still it's up to each of us to walk this path. And that's what we are doing here is taking uh, what was laid down in terms of this particular tradition. But these qualities, if you look at them, they really do tend to be universal qualities that I think are found in the heart and mind of anyone who has uh, cultivated a lot of goodness. And you might have someone in your mind, an ancestor or dear friend, aunt, uncle, grandparent. (coughs) They may not be practicing mindfulness. They may, may not be practicing awareness. And yet they embody these qualities. And so these qualities, they are not specific to you know, the Buddha, it's like he owned these. He basically was saying, 
There are these qualities that when developed and practiced, these sets of qualities will lead to stress and suffering for oneself and for others. And there are these qualities, this other set of qualities, that when developed and practiced, they bring a sense of ease, a sense of well-being. And he said that those qualities eventually, over time, are not dependent on what we experience. So this is often where we get that phrase, uh, independent of conditions, of freedom of heart and mind, independent of conditions. When we think about how we live our life generally, what we generally try and do is when we have a moment of unpleasantness. So just before uh, this talk, I was doing a little bit of walking back and forth in my room and just noticing, you know, coming up against towards the window and wall, just stopping there. And just how easy it is to feel something is slightly off. Wanting to fix something. Right? So that urge then comes to like keep moving, turn, do something. I think in uh, Tibetan um, teachings, they often describe samsara and samsara is basically a life that just keeps going, that doesn't feel free, that sense of being stuck in life. So samsara is often described as this uh, never-ending pursuit to fix the present moment. So we're always trying to fix this moment. And then we get those moments, particularly when we have a little bit of steadiness and stability, we get those moments where for a moment, and maybe just from walking out in nature, think about a time when been in a place that just felt so easeful, easeful for you. And in that moment, there is that taste, right? The taste of the ending of grasping, the ending of needing something to happen. Because I remember before I started hearing these teachings in this word, Nibbana, you know, it sounded like, is that heaven? You know, or is that something so far out there? that that's really just some idealistic uh, notion in some religion that I don't know anything about. And I think the more, um, the more people do practice, and the more you give yourself to, to cultivating awareness, mindfulness, you get these moments where you begin to taste that sense of ease and you realize this isn't just some... Uh, I don't know, some lofty thing. It's not, and even though I'm actually all, all of us, the three of us are in this app, um, and there's a few people in the hall that uh, support the app as well, called 10% Happier. Anybody know about that app, 10% Happier? Oh, hi. Well, it's gotten quite popular. 
Um, and it's a kind of low bar, 10% happier. And that is uh, wonderful because it sets, in a way, the expectations low. And it is true. We can become 10% happier. And yet, what is really amazing is that in this life, in this realm, being a human being with a heart and mind exactly the way we are, all of the conditioning that we have, none of us are actually broken. And we have everything that we need to gain insight, to understand how it is that this process of suffering and non-suffering comes about. And that's sort of extraordinary. And I've talked to friends that are from uh, some Buddhist cultures and just the whole mindset of rather than thinking negatively about oneself, there's already in the upbringing this sense of what a fortunate birth to be born as a human being. This sort of just like the cosmological framework that exists in that uh, some of those cultures and communities is that it's a very fortunate thing to take birth as a human being. I was going to ask how many people naturally feel that way, but we don't tend to feel, oh, how wonderful. Oh, great. Today is another day born as a human being. I get to, I get to practice again with all of the discomforts of the body and all of the emotions that come of feeling, uh, you know, low emotions and self issues of self-worth and the aging process setting in or questions about one's life. And there's so many things that can plague the mind and heart. And it's very difficult to then step back and say, Oh, I have this wonderful opportunity. I have this wonderful opportunity to check in again, to take another step in the direction, in the direction of well-being, in the direction of clarity. So what are we doing? What are we doing here? I just want to say a few words about kind of how to distill the practice down. Because oftentimes, you know, we get so um, focused in on the practice, you know, trying to notice the breath, trying to notice the body, or we're just trying to hold on for dear life of whatever the heck is going on inside our heart and mind and no idea what's going on. I just know I'm struggling and I don't like this or... Uh, I used to think in my very kind of first few retreats I was doing as a new retreatant, I remember I'd constantly think, you know, I do think retreats are the cause of suffering. <laughs> I, I, I think actually I'm a lot happier before I come on retreat. And then I start having all these doubts about what's the point of this? Why am I you know, looking down and not looking at all these beautiful people around me and taking them in and 
doing something more meaningful in the world? Why am I here following my breath? And so again, just reconnecting with that uh, view that the Buddha offered. Each moment, each moment something's getting cultivated. Each moment. So the nature of the mind always arising, always passing. So a single moment of connecting with the breath is a moment of supporting awareness, supporting mindfulness. A single moment of remembering how you're feeling, knowing that you're feeling anxious or some difficult mood is there. That's another moment of taking a step down the path. So there are these qualities that we're developing, qualities of the heart and mind, Awareness, compassion, patience, interest, wisdom, steadiness, confidence. These are all the qualities, not all of them, just some of the qualities that just through that process of being here, showing up moment after moment, it's not necessarily visible to us. But this is what's unfolding. It's like grain of sand after grain of sand. And slowly the hourglass gets full. And the Buddha pointed out these five particular qualities. I think I'll just mention these um, five as kind of the main qualities that we use in our practice. And these, these are called the five spiritual faculties. And these qualities are, we could say, they are the ones that are doing the work. And oftentimes, because we come into our practice with our own habits of thinking about, I need to do something, I need to uh, get something done, I need to get somewhere, I need to practice hard. We forget that actually what is happening on a deeper level is that we're allowing these qualities to get generated. These are the qualities that are getting cultivated. So I'll just name the five first. The first one is confidence, confidence or faith. The second one is energy or effort. The third one is mindfulness, awareness, which leads into stability of mind, and then wisdom. Faith, when there's faith, then we move into energy or effort. We apply energy or effort to actually move towards reality, towards the Dhamma. That brings us into knowing things, awareness, mindfulness, and that leads again into stability, and stability leads into seeing clearly. So that process continues to cycle. Once we begin to see more clearly, we gain more confidence. Oh, this is possible. This is possible to see what's happening in each moment of my life. I can start to see the nature of the human heart and mind and how we hold on, how we don't see that each moment is passing. 
possibility of letting go. So, comp- so confidence, faith. Um, could say that all of us have arrived here because there is some sense that this is doable or this is worth doing. Before my first retreat, I was in India. I've often uh, shared this story because first retreats oftentimes are the pretty memorable for most of us. We know where we were. We know exactly what happened during a lot of that first retreat. But this was standing outside of the center. And I was with my younger brother uh, about to do this retreat. And just some kind of backstory. Been uh, wandering around for about six months with both of my brothers at that time. Um, All three of us had gotten a little bit disenchanted with the pursuits of the world. And so we're in our 20s. Uh, we thought, well, where do you go if you're totally lost and confused? Let's go to India. So we went to India. And then at the end of that period, uh, I had heard this idea of meditation, that meditation might uh, fix what was ailing me. And in those six months, or uh, yeah, it was about a six-month period, we had slowly started to look um, more and more like sadhus. And so we are kind of growing our hair out and getting a little bit more matted, kind of wearing the sadhu look, which is these um, yellow lungis. And uh, so we were, we looked totally lost. And that was on the outside. And on the inside, we were pretty confused, but we were searching. So there was something very beautiful in that search. And it's oftentimes that search that does prompt us down the path, brings us into a treat or, you know, inspires us to begin to open apps that bring some sense of meaning and purpose and clarity. And so I turned to my younger brother and I said to him, because I didn't have any confidence what I was about to get into. And I said, what, are the, what if this brainwashes us? And so him, I could just see him looking at me, looking the way I did, big beard and dreads and just, and he said, would that be such a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> kind of getting some sort of brainwashing done. Maybe the mind needs some washing. And so as, the, as that uh, retreat unfolded, in a way there was like that turning, that sense of, oh, this is what's possible. I had no idea that I could use my mind, use this mind. I couldn't believe it. I can use this mind to actually purify this mind, this mind and heart. And that was the furthest thing away from my mind at that time because I was trying to do everything I could um, you know, to find a path of some sort of meaning and purpose. And this orientation that, yes, we have these qualities that are very close to us, that when nurtured, they start to make a difference. And all we need to do is water them. Let them come out and let them get strengthened, developed, nurtured, and we start to feel the difference. 
And there's a saying in um, Burma that if you take care of the Dhamma, then the Dhamma will take care of you. An analogy is often, you know, growing a tree. In the beginning, you have to really take care. It doesn't get trampled on. Let the seedling grow, right? Water it, make sure that it has space. And then at some point, it provides so much, right, for so many beings. And that's the nature of the mind. When it gets looked after, it isn't even us at that point doing it. It is the nature of the mind to then have the stability, the awareness, the clarity to meet the moment, right? And we see it. Some moments are then become easier. Some moments that previously were really too far away and were overwhelming, slowly they just become the leading edge. This is where I tend to get entangled, where I tend to get lost, where I tend to get overwhelmed and panicked. And in other places we feel, oh, right, I can actually now start to be with this. There's a book called The Wisdom of No Escape. Is that Pema Chodron or Chungpa? Pema. Yeah, so Wisdom of No Escape. I haven't read it, um, but I, I have read the title. <laughs> it's a great title. <laughs> So in that book, (laughs) I'm sure it says something (laughs) to the effect of uh, there's something deeply wise, right, about meeting what's here and not just escaping, right, escaping on to the next thing, the next distraction, the next whatever it is that the mind and heart need to do to get out of this moment. And I I don't want to say like it's, we need to force anything to stay with things, but the idea that we can slowly start to stay with what is here. Can I be with this ache in the body? Aching the knee, the back pain, this emotional feeling, the heart, very sensitive qualities. Can I be with this? And this is why the Buddha emphasized awareness so much. It's extraordinary that there's an entire path in a way that is developed and cultivated around awakening, awareness, to know, right? To become familiar with, to become intimate with what's here. And it's natural that as we come into this practice, you know, particularly if we don't have any, any momentum at all, so if we're brand new, or even if we've been practicing a lot and just the mind has been so caught up in a doing mode, so much doing, and then conceptual reality tends to be so predominant that we're not quite in the moment where we are, we tend to be constantly just experiencing what the concepts are telling us. So we have so much momentum of that. It can create a lot of uncertainty because we don't yet know what it feels like to be taking refuge in 
knowing. This is what refuge really means. We talked about taking the three refuges, the refuges and the precepts. So pointing to refuge and awakening, refuge in knowing reality. But it's difficult to take refuge in something that you haven't yet visited. Right? As you begin to visit, it's like a safe harbor. You go into a place where there's some safety and then begin to realize, oh, this possibility of meeting life with these qualities is available and it is worth cultivating. And then it's just a matter of how am I spending moment to moment? And so the encouragement here, and this is why we'll talk so much about the continuity, is that because the mind is always arising and passing, we don't notice that, but mind states always arising, consciousness constantly coming and going. So moments of seeing, moments of hearing, moments of smelling, moments of tasting, and then the mind doors, the sixth sense door, Constantly thoughts, emotions, feelings, always coming and going. And so it's also true then that the wholesome qualities are always coming and going. And yet what is uh, universal, seemingly really universal, is that we are born... And we need to develop wisdom. We need to develop clarity. We have all these seeds and all these potentials, and yet we also have deep habits. And maybe when we're young, they get deepened because we're so wide open. And so we don't have necessarily the right conditions to be cultivating clarity and wisdom. There's so much sensitivity. So it's one of the reasons why when we're young, we can get very wounded, a lot of traumas that can happen. But as we get cultivated, as awareness and wisdom get strengthened, the ability of the outside world to determine what happens in our mind and heart begin to lose power. Then we become more and more like a light that gets to dispel the darkness right? that is around us the darkness that's created by the main uh, poisons that the Buddha said, three main ways that beings create suffering. Greed, right? Greed, this energy. Aversion is that energy. Pushing, denying, trying to get out of, trying to escape. And then delusion. And I think Joanna may speak to delusion tomorrow night. Delusion is... One form of delusion is to just not even be present to what is actually happening. So each moment of being present, of having some awareness, is a moment of dispelling the tendency of delusion to arise. I've noticed that when I look at the clock, it tends to interfere with my thought processes. 
one little glance and the whole mind goes, oh, that chapter's gone. (laughs) So, (laughs) have I only talked about confidence and, oh boy, it's going to be a long talk. (laughs) No, we won't make it that long. So, uh, effort and energy, that second one. Uh, it's said that all, of all the qualities that are listed, um, I, don't, I didn't do the count, and I've only heard this one time, but it was from someone that knows a lot about the, uh, kind of these sorts of um, bits of knowledge about all the teachings of the Buddha, that this particular quality was named and described more often than any other quality. So wise effort. And I think there's so much attuning to what is wise effort. How do you stay on the path so that it becomes uh, something that gets integrated, that gets lived? Not just something that we do once in a while, but how is it also a wise effort so that it doesn't feel uh, you know, tiring to do? The only way that we're going to be practicing in a continuous way, right? By definition is that it's sustainable. What is it that allows me to practice in this moment so that there is enough knowing so that it leads to another moment of knowing so that the mind and heart don't get tired, don't get tired out. And yet, how do I stay close enough to the practice that I remember the possibility of continuing? So the Buddha often talked about the need for tuning and talked about, gave the analogies of tuning a musical instrument that when the strings are too loose, we totally lose track of the possibility of knowing the present moment. We're just living in the story of our life. We're not in the reality of experience. But then we get too tight, the body and mind start to get constricted and contracted. And that's where, and for many of us, I think particularly in modern culture, is so much becoming energy, so much leaning in, toppling into the next moment, always becoming, becoming something, becoming someone. And then we lose track of the possibility of that sense of being balanced moment by moment, having full capacity still to meet and to do, to respond. But it isn't in that constant, which is why we get so tired in our doing mode. And so what is it like? And this is going to be an interesting place to explore in your yogi job, I would say here in particular, because you have these small periods of time where there is a little bit more doing. What is it like to do that, right, as, really as your practice, to be right with it, so you feel your hands moving, you know the feeling inside if you're rushing or if you feel relaxed. A few years ago when I was sitting the three-month retreat, I had the Uh, yogi job of doing the kitchen laundry. 
If you feel like raising your hand, if you have that job, anyone have that job? <laughs> Someone has it. So the kitchen laundry, I think, has a, a yogi job. And it's like all of these, there's so much laundry. <laughs> Towels. And I remember in the first like week or two, that was the first few weeks. It took me a little while to get this insight. The first few weeks, I was kind of grumbling every time. And I was thinking, God, don't they have any sense of like that there's someone washing all these towels? And, you know, just reusing, kind of reusing the towels so we're not kind of constantly washing so much. And, and then slowly started to shift because I started to practice with each it's particularly on the other side. She just dumped things in. It was mostly on the folding that I then, which is where all the energy goes in. Each towel became this, such a wonderful gift to do it mindfully. And then each towel as I folded, it also became kind of, I would just in my mind be playing with a practice of may this being, and I'd bring some person to mind, be well, may they be safe or some groups of beings. And so as the retreat went along and I noticed that the, the yogis in the kitchen started using the towels more efficiently because they were changing, the laundry was going down. And then I started feeling, oh, my, all my towels. Like I want all my towels back. And just seeing how what we think of as being the problem begins to shift depending on how we're relating to it. And so a place like bringing in some energy, interest, effort into a place that we normally would lose it, like our yogi job. Mindfulness, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Here I just want to reemphasize just the simple, light remembering. And oftentimes, I think we feel that being aware is hard, Particularly if I ask someone, like, is being aware in your daily life hard? You know, almost everyone raises their hand. And it's really interesting. When I started to shift this um, real way of relating it to, and I got this mostly from my teacher, Sado Utejaniya, the way he framed it, but seeing that awareness itself isn't difficult. What's difficult is to remember. And if we bring that sense of orienting into our practice, as soon as we remember, awareness is working. But oftentimes, as soon as we become aware, then we start working. And that's where the mind starts to get too much. Right, so finding that balance, what helps you to remember to be aware, to stay really close to the practice, And then when does it start to get too much that the mind starts to get tight, right? But the continuity of awareness, it really is that being present moment after moment. It's what allows us to see the, basically the characteristics that we need to see in order to understand. And I'll get to that in a minute in the, the fifth Uh, quality. So continuity of awareness, as we continue moment by moment, developing awareness, this is one of the ways that stability of mind gets cultivated, that concentration gets cultivated. 
So we don't need to go trying to make the mind concentrated. Concentration is usually a result, not a cause. Putting in the causes or the conditions, which is whenever you remember to notice again, coming back to the body, back to the breath, then the stability of mind gets developed. (laughs) Stability of mind is basically the ability to be present, knowing what's happening. So we can be there as an emotion comes up and we know we're having an emotion or thoughts are spinning around in the mind. And we know the mind is spinning in thoughts, but the mind is still stable. So that will get developed over time. And then leading into wisdom. As the mind gets stable, present, we begin to start to see some of the main characteristics that the Buddha was pointing to. And these are the characteristics that we don't tend to see. And the main ones that the Buddha pointed to are anicca, which is things change, dukkha, which is things are basically unsatisfactory. They don't have the ability to be, to provide lasting happiness, permanent, ongoing. Has anyone found anything permanent that has made you permanently happy? If you did on a very deep level, you probably wouldn't be here because it would be working. (laughs) So the Buddha said things, you know, it's not that things don't bring us a lot of joy. Things bring us joy and we need joyful things. And joy is a big part of this, this path and practice. And we'll be talking about that as well. But that, but inherently because things are constantly changing and we can't hold on to anything, any emotion, any mood, like the moods that we woke up with this morning, most likely aren't exactly the same mood and emotion that's arising right now. In fact, it just is a new moment and it may be some pattern arising, but nothing is steady. And then the last one is uh, not self. So those are the not self, uh, anatta, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Things are impermanent. Things aren't able to provide lasting happiness. And that things are not inherently some essence. Um, I feel like I just opened a huge can of worms because each of those is a huge talk that for those of you that have heard talks know that that's a talk. Um, but sometimes just having those as names. Um, for now, I would say stay with the the just that sense of experiencing things are impermanent and that it's not wrong. In fact, it's an insight when you start to sense that feeling, right? Oh, there's some struggle here. Heart and mind are resisting something, some restlessness, some doubt, some energy in the body, something unpleasant happening. That basically, if we are paying attention and aware that yields the insights, it yields the wisdom, but typically we escape, right? We go out. But as we stay with what is here, we begin to see the capacity. Oh, awareness of something is radically different than just being entirely entangled and identified with it, right? So being aware of something 
moment by moment, right? That's what begins to happen. Why it's a refuge and why is there freedom is because there are these qualities of mind and heart that can meet what is difficult without entanglement, right? Without confusion, without the distortions of perception that are usually how we meet experience. So welcome to day one. (laughs) Uh, I feel like that was maybe day 10. Uh, I just want to pause here and see if there's any um, percolating, bubbling up questions that might be helpful um, to ask or to clarify at this moment. Um, Let's take a few minutes to, to see if there's any questions that are Is confidence the same as intention? intention. So those. Um, so the question was: confidence and intention are they are they similar or the same? So confidence would be that quality that uh, has a sense of knowing that something is meaningful, and we know we've been there, we visited it, and we know. We know something about it. Um, I'm trying to think of another synonym for confidence. I mean, faith is oftentimes the word, but faith oftentimes isn't really entangled in English with a lot of belief. But here it's that, that sense that, you know, this is worth doing. And oftentimes, you know, one of the ways that faith arises is either through our direct starting out and trying something. Sometimes sometimes it comes through the words of another. So you hear something that starts to brighten the mind and heart. Oftentimes, stories are given about uh, monastics by the way they move, the way they comport themselves, just the presence in which they take each step and, and get up and walk down can bring a lot of faith. Sometimes even just the images of, of a being, you know, we have these beautiful Kuan Yin's, there's one back there, but the one out behind us, so beautiful, so poised, right? such clarity. And when I look at that image of her, it's like, wow. Right? You can just feel what was embodied in that, the sense of the wisdom, compassion, the clarity, the, you know, the strength of all that. So sometimes images can bring that. Intention is that quality of mind that is said to uh, kind of gathers the energies in the mind and heart that then uh, supports a moment of doing, a moment of becoming. But even when we sit still, it's said that the mind is, is filled with intentions, the intention to sit still, the intention not to move. So a lot of our intentions are not noticed. They're so natural. We move our body, we're walking around. But as we start to tune in, the intentions that are a little bit more coarse, so oftentimes we start to notice the intention, and this is where mindfulness makes a big difference in our 
um, life, you know, our ongoing life, is as you begin to notice the intention, I'm about to do something unskillful, and you feel it. The mind starts to feel agitated. You can feel the motivation that's coming along with the intention is something not skillful. So the intention is just that, that quality of mind the Buddha was pointing to that is uh, leading us to do, to do things. Um, and again, oftentimes we identify with our intentions, but the, you know, in this sort of framing of looking at qualities specifically and individually, we start to, to tease out what's called the tangle. So the tangle of our experience all gets bundled up and we don't notice that in fact our life is composed of seeing and hearing, right? The sense doors, the movements of the mind, these different qualities that we're mentioning. And all of that starts to get seen, right? We don't need to go in there and, you know, pull it all apart, just that we start to see, <laughs> see that what we normally get really caught onto, identified with, you know, holding on to this body, how this body looks, or being identified with our emotional state, rather than having the relationship to it as, oh, there's this emotion arising, and it can be known, and there's a little bit of space. So all these qualities start to get seen more and more clearly, but confidence is that sense of having the sense of interest or sense of knowing something is fruitful, and intention is the quality of mind that is a doing quality. Sometimes on the treatment, But that's not my experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. My experience is that they rise and yeah. they go, oh, here you are again. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so the comment was um, saying that uh, uh, there is some stability that starts to come, but then what also starts to arise is all these things that they've done that are n- maybe not the best. Okay. Yeah, so some you know actions and things that have been said uh, that were unskillful and caused harm. And someone had once shared, uh, just don't think about those things, and then everything will be better. Um, if only they were that easy, because we could just say, and the instructions are so easy to say, you know, be aware. I could just stop there. Be aware and to know the way things are, and and then give you a little bit more details, and then great done and we give you a stamp and that would be it so cult, the, the whole idea of these grooves and habits of the mind they're very deep very deep habits of, of every time we think to just be absorbed in thought very deep habit nothing wrong with thoughts right thoughts are a nature of the mind an aspect of the mind but in the beginning as the mind keeps thinking we keep we give the advice and encouragement right now that it's more grounding to stay with the body and breath that's why we say that it's grounding it's 
allows you to, to kind of place yourself again right here. It is natural that as the mind gets steadier, it's often called life review, it starts to see things that we've done, right? The mind and heart has done. And one of the, we could say that one of the ways of describing this path is a path of purification. How the heart and mind gets purified is that it begins to understand the nature of action, right? the nature of the causes of those actions. And we start to shift from that being uh, identified with, I did that, which keeps the blame and shame in kind of in motion we're kind of stay there and it just keeps coming, keeps coming. As we start to allow those thoughts to arise and we feel the emotion, we begin to understand, oh, I said and did that because I was confused or, you know, I was overwhelmed or they, you know, and we've blamed a lot of other people. They guaranteed if someone has done something very unskillful, and it was intentional, it was guaranteed if you looked into their heart and mind, there, was, there were the unskillful qualities, right? Of greed, of delusion, of some kind of aversion. And that's true for our own heart and mind. But when we see it through the Dhamma lens, right? The lens of seeing qualities, we begin to understand why did that happen? And that happened because of conditions. And that's an insight that starts to arise. And so we don't need to need, even need to go looking for that. So one of the things I like to sort of say about that is, as we cultivate awareness now, steadiness in this moment, seeing things as changing, as being causes and conditions, moment after moment that are happening, then when we have moments that we remember something from the past, it gets met with the qualities of the heart and mind in this moment and things get purified. Does that make sense? Because now we start to see it more clearly of, oh, how did that happen? And it's the awareness and wisdom that will meet that. But we tend to stay stuck in the same ruminating energies because we're still at the same level. And there's this quote that probably many of you have heard of by Einstein that says something like, um, you know, a situation can't get resolved by the same level of thinking, you know, of mind that created it. And yet, you know, in the world, we kind of keep spinning in this samsaric way of being in society because we're not purifying the heart and mind. We have the same level of greed, aversion, and delusion, lack of wisdom, lack of clarity, lack of stability. And yet when we come here, we begin to develop these qualities. And then the situation, you know, places of stuckness begin to open. We start to see, but that's not a doing. That is allowing the cultivation of heart and mind to get developed. Does that make sense? I would say, and just to reiterate, everyone teaches in their own way. And so to really listen and when something resonates, work with it. Because you said it wasn't working with you, I was just working for you. That idea of just don't think about those things. I'll just say my, and, and this is for most of us, we would be saying, 
it's, it's hopeless to fight the mind. I mean, the nature of the mind is going to do what it's do is going to do what it what it does. So, uh, having more of that that attitude of allowing, allowing, and then meeting it with interest, and slowly we'll talk also more about how to how to be with these repetitive, deeper thought patterns. Okay. Yeah. I'll just do this last one. I find when I come here, there's enough spaciousness to recognize the accumulation of tension. And I always return from retreat life with such great intention as it's arising instead of accumulating. And I'm just wondering, especially for those of us that might be in jobs where there's a lot of thinking involved and pressure, if you have any advice or strategies in the lived experience outside right. of the retreat container to stay with this presence. Yeah, so I just... the basically a question of how do you keep going of um, because often coming on on retreat, naming that yes, here you're able to actually feel the arising of tension and then let it go. And you have an intention and it's, it sounds like you're getting better at it of in daily life, seeing it and letting it go. And yet is there a magic bullet is what I'm kind of questioning. Cause <laughs> this is often, this is the question that I think almost universally arises at the end of a retreat is, okay, now that I feel a little bit more shiny, because we have kind of arrived sort of a little bit muddy, then we get to the end of the retreat, we're all like shiny, and we'll get there. So we have five days, so don't worry. <laughs> Be mucky right now. This is your chance, because it's not going to stay forever. So anyways, um, and then by the end, the question comes, how do I keep going? We will talk a lot about this towards the end. But I would say, because you're asking the question at the beginning, for me, when I come on retreats now, I just really try to think about being on retreat as my life. Not that I'm going to live here, but this is life. How do I be here in a really normal, natural way? And how do, what, what is it that supports the continuity of practice? Knowing that when we have more things that trigger our identity, you know, when we see someone else that we know, and then of course our life triggers all of the habits of mind of racing out. So the mind goes out. That's natural. We know that. But here, as you, as you take it on, is this is possible, right? And you appreciate it. It gives that sense of confidence, really appreciating that difference. What does it feel like to be aware? And then sometimes I just, I will bring in sort of when the mind, this is as the mind gets a little bit steadier, you can bring in those moments as a little reflection, knowing where you get lost or overwhelmed. So the mind is steady and calm. If you know, in a few days when the mind gets steady and calm, you can drop that in like a little thought. Where do I get really tense and overwhelmed? But now that the mind is calm, you can actually start to imagine and see yourself starting to feel that energy. What happens? to your body and mind. But this is, this is the whole essence of the practice. We're not here to like get it all done. We're here to cultivate these qualities that will, they, will, they won't just fall off a cliff just because the retreat ends. But the more we see it as ongoing cultivation, it brings a lot of kind of confidence. This is doable. It is doable to practice this in our ongoing life, not just because the container is here. But when we're here, we have to really, you know, 
use what's here with such great opportunity to be reminded all the time, to see one another. But over time, we internalize it. It gets internalized. And so we'll talk a lot about daily life at the end. Yeah. Okay, so would my um, colleagues will beat me up in the back room if I keep going. No, they won't. They're, they're so loving. But it's, it's, the, the dinner is waiting for us, and I really want to honor the, um, the time. But we'll have, we'll have time. So let's just take a moment. Um, don't need to really change your posture, but just starting to just, again, if you haven't had your awareness with you, just noticing. Uh, and reconnecting again. So just allowing these moments, just moment by moment, letting the mind and heart get cultivated. It's the natural movement of the Dhamma. Invitation to take this with you as you stand up and into your ongoing moments. Thank you for your attention and for your practice. So we have our light dinner now, and then we'll be back in the hall at 6.45. And reminder that the uh, LGBTQ group, um, affinity group, is meeting at 6.45, is that right? So again, if you feel inclined to join that affinity group, Um, that'll be then. Okay.